0: Remember that the, the primary message being expressed by all of the prophets is threefold, right? And, and this will sound really familiar, hopefully, but it's, hey, you've broken the covenant. Speaking directly to Israel, primarily, you've broken the covenant, so repent. And if there's no repentance, judgment is coming. But not just for you, Israel, also the nations. And I explained last week the reasoning for that is because if Israel's not doing their job others are suffering, right? If they're not representing God the way that they're supposed to, other people suffer. Similarly in the Christian walk, if we're not representing God in our own lives the way God's calling us to, if we're not expressing Jesus to other people, other people suffer because of our lack of obedience. Um, And then the third point is even still there's hope in the future and not just for you, Israel, but also for the nations. So that's the threefold message of pretty much all of the prophets I mean, that's what they're calling Israel to and what, they're, what God's accusing them of as having broken the covenant. Um, and we saw or we see this playing out in Isaiah chapter 7 through 11. Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, and really the whole nation, so the northern and the southern kingdoms, um, they're all living in idolatry. They're uh, the three serious breaches a breaking that is the breaking of the covenant that God accused them of in the first five chapters of Isaiah is idolatry these should also sound familiar hopefully it's been a while but idolatry, social injustice, not taking care of the poor and the needy among them, not taking care of, of people who have no franchise in life, no anchoring, no solid uh, footing right helping them get back on their feet, and taking advantage of people um, and which ends up with them being in those kinds of situations. Uh, if you recall, land wasn't supposed to change families in Israel, right? It was; it could be used as collateral for a period of time, but it was supposed to be, that debt was supposed to be forgiven back so that the land would never leave the family. Well, they were taking people's land permanently. Um, so this is one of the things, social injustice. And then the third one was ceremonial ritualism or... A little bit longer definition that relying on religious rituals to save them, the sacrificial system, going through the motions. So, religious ritual rather than a relationship with God. Um, You remember Ahaz rejected the sign that was offered in chapter seven, and this actually turns into a reminder to King Ahaz that he should have trusted Yahweh. That sign, and then all the all the signs through the oracles. from chapter 7 through chapter 11, all point to this. Um, and they're full of judgment and also hope. The judgment comes in the, in the face of Assyria coming in to the northern tribes and wiping them out eventually in 722 B.C. And, uh, and the hope is these future glimpses that we talked about where the, the camera's actually kind of panning back and God's showing the bigger picture of what's going on and showing the future of what's going to happen. Um, he shows that he shows this through the promised child of verse of uh, chapter seven, which becomes Emmanuel in chapter nine, which becomes Jesus the Messiah in the New Testament, right? So this this child who becomes a king, uh, a righteous king, the king we've always needed, um, who rules like none that have come before him. I mentioned four things last week to remember four more things, right, to remember when dealing with prophetic books, and just to recap those quickly, is that the prophetic oracles, they'll often jump from current situations to future events and back to current situations or current events without a lot of indication that, that the chronology is being, that he's bouncing around in the, in the chronology, in the timeline. Um, and we, I gave a few examples of that last week. Um, one of the ways you can tell when it's pointing to the future is that this phrase that happens quite frequently in those days or in the last days or in the day of the Lord um, or the coming day of the Lord, other phrases like this that occur throughout the, the Old Testament, they're generally pointing toward future events and usually pointing toward either the millennial reign of Christ or um, the eternal state, heaven, glory, living with God in glory, uh, that that thing that we're all looking forward to, right? Um, secondly is that the prophecies uh, regarding the Messiah often combine the first and second coming in the same context, and it's hard to discern where, they're, where they split. And the example I used was Isaiah 60 when, when, Isaiah, when Jesus was handled this. When the scroll of Isaiah was handed to Jesus and he read Isaiah 60 and stopped like mid-verse, right? And everybody's got to be looking at him like, what about the rest of that? Well, the rest of it was the second is the second coming. He was speaking about his presence right there with them at that point in time. Um, but if you just read through the, you wouldn't see that without having Jesus' interpretation of that scripture. Um, third thing was that the prophets themselves often were unclear on the details of the messianic prophecy, and reference First Peter chapter one verses ten through twelve. We read that last week. Won't read it again tonight, but. Um, just talks about even, even the angels long to look into these things, and they were written not, for the, not necessarily just for the people who received them. They were written for us so that we would see through the prophets the things that God was promising. Because it's a lot easier to see prophecy fulfilled looking back than it is when you're living right in the middle of it. Um, and then the fourth thing was that all, much messianic prophecy will be fulfilled during the millennial reign which I take to be a literal thousand years or some extended period of time when Christ will physically reign on earth, resurrection will have happened, and the saints will be ruling and judging with him, and people will still be marrying and, and having babies, but Satan will be put away, locked up for a period of time so that they can't deceive anybody. Um, and we'll actually read those verses tonight. It's Revelation 20. Revelation um, I also talked about, without actually using this term, but I think this is a great term to reference this idea, eternal perspective. And I referenced that last week when I asked you, if you knew that the Lord was calling you home tonight, how much would that change your view of challenging and difficult things that you're facing in your life, right? Either right now or things that you've faced in your past. And I'm not talking about difficulties necessarily, although that's part of it, but I mean real evil. That's been perpetrated against you. Real hurtful things that people have done. If you knew Jesus was coming back today, whether it was just for you or for all of us, wouldn't that change your your perspective on those things? They would be like nothing compared to the glories that await us. They are like nothing compared to the glories that await us. Living that way is challenging, difficult, but oh so important to who we are as children of Christ. Um, remember that in the new heavens and the new earth, every tear will be wiped away. No more fear, no more pain, no more bad people, no more regret. Um, and we can, we can start living in those realities right now. Maybe not fully, right? But we get a taste of heaven on a regular basis uh, when we're experiencing God's peace and His love and finding real security as one of His children. Also, I love love this quote so much. I'm going to use it again. It was A.W. Tozer from The Knowledge of the Holy, and he said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God Himself, and the most important fact about any of us is is not what we say or do at any given time, but what he that person in his deep heart conceives god to be like we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of god that's the end of the quote uh in our fallen world is it any wonder that mankind generally creates god in our image rather than the other way around right and then we worship ourselves we worship the things of man um just the opposite of the way we're created. We're created in God's image and we're created to bring Him glory and to worship Him. The secret to who you really are and the key to your future is not your self-image, but it's your God image, what you think about God. Your identity, your value, your worth, it all stems on what God says about you. Not what the world says because of things that have happened to you or or anything else, um, but about what God says about you. So we need to view ourselves through the lens of how God sees us, about how, who he says we are. And the gospel saves us by improving our God image. God's, we get a bigger picture of God, and that's at least a portion of what um, brings us to salvation, right, through belief and trust in Christ. But um, having a big enough God, realizing that he actually can do that is a part of our salvation. Um, It also gets us thinking realistically about the wrath of God and causes us to long for the grace of God. Now, if your God image is big enough, um, you might just get accused of being too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, right? You've heard that phrase before. Uh, That's actually impossible. So do that. Be accused of being too heavenly minded to be any earthly good because that is actually impossible. Uh, the best thing we can do for our world, for our country, for our friends, for our family, for ourselves, is have a bigger view of who God is, a bigger image of Him in our minds, in our hearts, uh, anything that's expanding our awareness of how incredibly awesome God is. Uh, last week's passages pointed to two realities that help us increase that image of God in our minds— uh, the first one I mentioned was from chapter 10, and it's that he's moving heaven and earth for the benefit of his people. You see that throughout scripture. He moved heaven and earth for you, to bring salvation to you. He moved heaven and earth to bring salvation to me. I can look back and see that in my life. Places where he, he rescued me before I trusted him. Um, yeah. <laughs> the second thing from chapter 11 was that he's raising up the king we've always needed. And there's one... Actually, I think there's only one appropriate response to those two realities, to this overwhelming grace that he employs in order to bring these things about, and that's worship, and that's what we're going to see in chapter 12 of Isaiah. Now we're not turning there yet, so don't don't jump the gun. So I mentioned. Um, well, actually I didn't mention because I was out of time. I said I was going to mention a bunch of verses that connect the Old Testament and the New Testament regarding Jesus, the Messiah. How, do, how did the New Testament writers know? I mean, obviously they walked with the Lord and they, He told them about these connections and they saw the miracles and, and He opened their hearts and their minds and they believed. But, but as that story, as those things get passed down in future generations or, or even just imagine um, Paul, for instance, this guy who is steeped in Jewish tradition and the Old Testament, what kinds of verses convinced him that Jesus was who he claimed to be? And now he experienced his own miracle, right, of being blinded for multiple days, and, and uh, this helped being he knocked off of his horse. Um, this helped, I'm sure. But there also, I mean, he had, to, he had to be able, he had to logically in his mind, he had to be able to connect the Old Testament and things he was learning and hearing about Jesus, which is now what we have in the New Testament, right, written down for us, um, so we're going to walk through some of those. Uh, but this list of passages, it's, it's not a comprehensive list. There's a lot more, right? But these passages are some that connect to this thread of redemption that actually starts back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis and runs all the way through the new heaven on the earth. So from Genesis to Revelation. And as we read them together, I want you to keep in mind the six characteristics that we talked about last week about this new king, um, this king that we've always needed And those six were the number one, that his lineage is from from David, right? Secondly, that his character will be divine. Third, that his rule will restore unimaginable peace to the creation, every part of the creation. Um, His leadership will draw all the nations to him. His nation will be regathered in victory, and his people will worship in spirit and truth." With those things resounding, just thinking about those things, I'm going to read through these passages and you'll see some of these connections. In fact, turn with me to them. We're going to start in Genesis 3.15. So right after the fall, when God is cursing the ground and He's cursing Satan and telling Adam and Eve what the results of those things are, keep in mind that He does not curse either Adam or Eve Uh, This is known as the Proto Evangelicum, the first mention of the Gospel, chapter three, verse fifteen. If I didn't say that already, um, says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her." Now he's speaking to the serpent here, right? Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you, and excuse me, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So it's saying that her offspring is going to kill you, essentially, even though you're going to be nipping at his heels. You're going to bite him in the heel and cause damage, but he's going to kill you. He's going to crush your head. Um, So this is the first place where it's saying, out of the seed of woman is this promised offspring who's going to crush the enemy, okay? Uh, Turn to Genesis 49. you could expand this section. In the interest of time, I'm just going to read verse 10. But there's a whole chunk here about Judah, the tribe. Oh, let's just read it all. we got time. Start in verse 8. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Let me set the context of this briefly. <laughs> so, um, uh, Jacob has gathered all of his sons together. Right? They've, uh, Joseph has been in Egypt, and, and they've they've uh, they're beginning to become this nation. There, right? And Joseph's brothers and all of and his dad have all come, and the seventy people that are with him. So they're just. I mean, they're just starting out in Egypt. And now Jacob is about to die and he's blessing his children, saying a blessing on each of his 12 children. Verse 10, "'The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine.'" And his teeth whiter than milk. The main point here many of these verses connect to other places. I mean, the, 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 his garments being washed in, in wine reminds, and blood, right? It's, it's pointing toward Revelation, um, pointing towards Jesus in Revelation. Um, other places are pointing to, to various scriptures. But the important one here that, that I want to point out is verse 10. The, shep, the scepter shall not depart from him. This is a symbol of rule, right? It means he's going to be the king. Out of the line of Judah is going to come the king. Um, Deuteronomy 18. So, Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law, essentially, this is Moses re- reminding the people everything that God has, has promised, and in Deuteronomy 18, verses, starting verse 15, it says, "'The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen.'" I myself will require it of him. Again, this is pointing towards Jesus. At the end of Deuteronomy, it says, and no other prophet arose among them like Moses. Um, And this was probably, that little chunk of Deuteronomy was probably written when the 12 prophets, what we call the minor prophets were written. Um, Ezra probably edited some portions of Deuteronomy, added that in. So from Moses' time all the way up to the intertestamental period, there had not risen a prophet among the people like Moses. None of the other prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, none of them were like did everything that Moses did. Second um, Samuel chapter 7. talking about the Davidic covenant, so the king again. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. Context here, this is when David is wanting to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord says, no, but I'm going to build a house for you. Uh, Verse 8, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, 'I I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Same thing you promised Abraham. I'll make you a great name. Uh, Verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Promise of a land here. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly forever. Now, initially, he's probably talking about Solomon, right? Because Solomon actually built the temple, and uh, God did raise him up as the king, and um, but ultimately, Solomon didn't last forever, did he? So, again, this is pointing to Jesus, um, a Davidic covenant, a promise that through David's line, the kingdom will always exist in David's line. Um, Verse 14, "'And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, when I put, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever.'" In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. A lot more we could talk about there, but the focus is um, this promise of a continuous kingdom through the line of David. Turn to Isaiah 11. Passage we were in last week. Verse one says, "There shall come forth of a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his fruit; from his roots shall bear fruit." And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And it goes on talking about his divine attributes. So now it's talking that now it's gone from this king, um, talk about a king, a prophet. This continuous line through David, uh, well through Judah, through David, and now it's talking about a branch, this offshoot from Jesse. Jesse is David's father. Remember so. In the same, uh, in that lineage, um, Jeremiah twenty three, Jeremiah twenty three, verse five. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In his days that Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, look at the change here in the historical reference about Yahweh, about God. Because they always said, the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt, right? They're not going to say that anymore. Verse 8, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. So it's talking about this in-gathering, from, and in the other passages we looked at in Isaiah, talked about coming from the north and the east and the west and the south. So every place that they'd been scattered, the Lord is calling His people back. We see hints of that, I mentioned last week, in, in the reestablishment, the rebirth, really, of Israel as a, as a nation. Um, unprecedented in history for a nation to be gone for that long of a period of time, and then to be reestablished. Um, but we don't really see them dwelling securely, do we? We see them dwelling and able to defend themselves quite nicely, um, but not really dwelling securely yet. So this is also pointing to something in the future. Um, Jeremiah 33 Jeremiah 33, 15 says, in those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Again, this branch from the line of David, Uh, and in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. Again, talking about peace, and this is the name by which it will it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And then he repeats the Davidic covenant right after that. Um, Zechariah 3. So Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. Right before Malachi, or Malachi if you're Italian. Right where all the pages are stuck together, literally. There we go. <clears throat> um, Zechariah three verse eight it says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you." Ah, yes. I started to think this is not the right passage. Uh, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit uh, before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. So again, the branch prophecy, or talking about this branch. Uh, Zechariah 6, so just a couple pages to the right. Actually, I may not even a page, one page for me. Verse 12. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Uh, the temple already existed when this was written, the second temple, um, Herod's temple, which was destroyed in 70 AD, right? Um, maybe there's going to be rebuilding the temple, would seem potentially. But it's really pointing to speaking about, uh, I think, I mean, Jesus said, we are the temple. We're living stones, Peter says. We're living stones being built together, built up into a living temple. Um, Jesus really is the one who builds the new temple, and he's building it with you and me. Uh, We're the stones in that temple, the priests. Um, But again, the branch is the point here. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 1. This is connecting the genealogy to David and to Jesse. So verse 1, says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in verse 6, says, and Jesse, the father of David the king. So this is all speaking of Jesus' lineage. Interesting note that since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there aren't any records um, for anyone else to actually prove that they're a son of David and a son of Jesse, (laughs) but we have established genealogy right here that proves that Jesus is that. Um, Trivial pursuit answer there for you, but um, it's just interesting. Um, Matthew 3.3. 3. More connections here. This is John the Baptist who says, uh, and he quotes Isaiah in verse 3. Speaking about Jesus, he says, "'For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah "'when he said, "'The voice of one crying in the wilderness, "'prepare the way of the Lord, "'make his paths straight.'" Now, if you were to go back to Isaiah 40 verse 3 and look at that, you would notice that Lord is capitalized. It's uppercase L and then smaller but still uppercase O, uppercase R, uppercase D. That's Yahweh. Every time you see that in the Old Testament as Lord capitalized, it's Yahweh. It's His name. It's the covenant name of God. And John the Baptist is saying, Jesus… Is the Lord? Because is Yahweh actually? He's proclaiming, maybe without even knowing it, but he's proclaiming that Jesus is actually Yahweh. That Jesus is God. Um, so another connection there. John eight fifty eight. Anybody ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God? Um, this is a good passage to have in mind. John chapter eight, verse fifty eight. He's arguing with the Pharisees and, and uh, the Jewish leadership, and uh, they're accusing him of being the son of Beelzebub and, and uh, not who he claims to be. And, and uh, he makes quite the profound statement here. He says in verse 58 Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham existed. I already was, essentially. And I am is that is that phrase, ego of me, that um, in Hebrew God used at the burning bush when, when Moses asked him, Who do I say sent me? when they start asking me questions. It's like I am that I am. You tell them that I am sent you. Jesus is proclaiming that he's God here as well. The other way we know this is how did the how did the Jewish people react? What's the next verse say they did? Well, they picked up stones to stone him, yeah, and he, like, disappears into the crowd. That'd be cool. I don't know how he did that, but he just blended into the crowd and walked away, right? Um, but they knew what he was saying. They, they knew that he was proclaiming, I am it, I am him, I am God. Uh, there was no question in their mind what he was, that he was proclaiming what they viewed as blasphemy. Um, a few more here. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. Verse 34, I probably should have skipped this one, but you ever write down a bunch of verses and and then not put many notes with it to remember what you were going to say about it? Uh, Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. The connection here is that in, in all the branch prophecies that talked about security and, and peace for Jerusalem, essentially, that he's bringing this peace, right? And Jesus is bringing peace. He makes this proclamation here that he didn't come in the first coming to bring peace, but actually to bring a sword, the sword of his word, dividing truth from untruth, right? Dividing, uh, dividing the realities of who he is and God's kingdom from how they were living in this idolatrous, religious, ceremonial fog that they were in, thinking that they were doing everything right. Um, to wake them up from that. Because we we know that he is the king of peace, right? The king of Jerusalem, the king of peace. Luke uh, 2, verse 14. Just a few more here, promise. Luke chapter 2. That's a bad reference. Sorry, skip that one. Um, John fourteen twenty seven. It's not. I wrote it down wrong. John fourteen. Not a bad reference. It's still the word. It's just an incorrect reference for the points I was making. John fourteen twenty seven. says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, Troubled. neither let them be afraid. This is in the upper room. Jesus is getting, he's been telling them, I'm, I'm, going, to be, I'm going to be departing, but take heart. Uh, my peace I leave with you. And then we won't turn to the other ones that I have written down here, but think about uh, in John, you can write it down if you want. John 20, verse 19, um, post-resurrection, Behind locked doors, the disciples are gathered together, and Jesus suddenly is in their midst. And what does He say? Peace be with you. Yeah. Uh, So He's bringing this peace. He His presence, uh, especially the resurrected Christ, just is this this presence of peace. Um, uh, Turn to Romans chapter eleven. Romans 11, verse 28, that's where we'll start. The whole book of Romans would be really great to read. Um, so the the heading in my Bible here is the mystery of Israel's salvation, right? So he's, it, Paul is talking about um, Israel and, and uh, how they compare to the church or how they compare to Christians in regards to the gospel. Verse 28 says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. So they're enemies of the gospel in order for Gentiles to be brought in. That's what Paul's saying here. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience... So, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. He's talking about when he's going to call them back in, when he's going to bring them back into the fold. Um, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I'm not going to try and exegete this passage tonight. But notice what happens right after Paul's talking about this. Like this, this, It's this huge mystery about how Israel's going to be saved after they've been disobedient and they've turned away. And and in order to make them jealous, God's called in Gentiles. He's called in you and me to be part of His kingdom. He's grafted us into the promises that God gave to them. He's going to turn all that around. And not turn it around in the sense that we're going to lose the promise, but turn it around in the sense that He's going to draw Israel back into that promise. And, and their eyes are going to be opened um, refreshed and renewed, and they're going to come back into the kingdom. Uh, and, and Paul is so overwhelmed with this, he just breaks out into worship. It's the next thing that happens here in, in Romans. Um, he just says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Um, this is the result of understanding and seeing the big picture of God, understanding His promises. It ends up in worship. Um, uh, one more, a little bit longer passage. I told you we'd get to Revelation 20, so let's read through that as well. <clears throat> and I'm just going to read through the whole thing and... Try not to make too much comment on the way through. Um, Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Same one we read about in Genesis 3.15. Who's the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. What happens during that thousand years? Where do people go? Uh, they're not being deceived by the devil anymore. They're not being deceived. Um, we read about it in Isaiah. They're going to the Lord. They're going to Mount Zion, and they're getting, they're getting wisdom there. They're learning there. They're learning from the Lord. And he's doling out justice and peace and righteousness. Righteousness. Verse 4 And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This The first ones raised to life. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. It's talking about us there. We're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years, and then on into glory forever. Verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together, or to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up and up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp and the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Think about his, uh, uh, not Ezekiel, um. Elijah, thank you. <laughs> Think of Elijah when, on the Mount of Ebal when, when uh, he and, the, and all these 200 priests or 150 priests, how many ever it was, and, and uh, he throws water all over the, the altar and, and just prays calmly and says, God, please just consume that. <laughs> this fire comes from heaven and consumes it all. Same picture is happening here. God's just consuming these armies, wiping them out. Verse 10 And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Is my name written in the book of life? <laughs> so I don't want to be thrown in the lake of fire. We all will stand before the Lord and give an accounting of our lives. And you can reference uh, Romans fourteen verses ten and twelve, Second Corinthians five verse ten, Ecclesiastes chapter twelve verses ten to fourteen or thirteen to fourteen. They all talk about giving an account for things that you've done, things you've thought, things you've said. We all will give an account. But Christ is paid. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, He's paid for your debts. He's paid for your sins. So while you still may have to give an accounting for them, explain. Maybe that's explaining why. Maybe it's as simple as repenting and say, "Lord, I was selfish. Sorry for these decisions I made." I don't know what that's going to look like, um, but giving an accounting for the things that we've done. But if our names are written in the Book of Life, we have salvation and hope and peace with this God who's reconciling us to Himself. Um, so this should raise this question, how do, is my name written there? Or if it's not, how do I get it written there? How do I make sure my name is written in the book of life? Well, think of the Lamb's book of life as heaven's birth register. And the only way to get your name registered there is to be born into God's family. So another birth, right? Born again, you might ask. Um, well, you're probably all familiar with John chapter three, when a man asks that exact question, how can one be born again? Right? Uh, so John chapter 3 records the reaction of a man, Nicodemus, who couldn't get his mind around this concept. Um, so this is a devoutly religious man, knew the Old Testament front to back, probably had most of it, if not all of it, memorized, and because he couldn't, he just didn't get it, um, and he, but he knew he was missing something in life, so he sneaks, sneaks out, he snuck out one night to talk to Jesus. Uh, when Jesus told him he'd have to be born again to get into God's kingdom, he got confused. He said, uh, well, listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. This is John 3, 6, 3, um, 3 through 17, I think. Jesus said, you're absolutely right. Take it for me. Unless a person is born from above, it's not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. How can anyone, said Nicodemus, be born who has already been born and grown up? You can't re enter your mother's womb and be born again. What are you saying with this born from above talk? Jesus said, You're not listening to me. You're not hearing. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation, this idea, of the wind hovering over the water, creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. When you look at a baby, it's just that, the body you can look at, you can touch. But the person who takes shape within, that person is being formed by something you can't see, by spirit, and becomes a living spirit. So don't be surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. Uh, Actually, it's verses three through seven from the message. So we refer to this idea as being saved, born again, and I want to share three characteristics of someone who fits this description or fits uh, being born again. Uh, born again um, Born again people have acknowledged that they're sinners who can't save themselves. Have you acknowledged that? The Bible says that we've all committed sins. That is, we've failed to live up to the standards that God has set for us we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners and proved that we're utterly incapable of living up to God's um, glorious righteousness. Incapable of living up to his will for us. Because of our sinfulness, we're completely incapable of living the way that God wants us to live. You might say we're stillborn as sinners, dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins condemned to death, spiritual death for all eternity. That's why we need new life, this inside life, when we win, or this inside life that we get when we're born again. The second characteristic of born-again people is that they've embraced the fact that Jesus took the death penalty for them. Romans 6.23 says, but God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our master. Since God's law demands that the penalty for sin be paid, someone has to pay that price. Someone's got to clear that debt. You owe it. I owe it. We're responsible for it before God. But something amazing happened in John three sixteen through 18. It um, says, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why. So that no one needs to be destroyed We all have an opportunity to be saved, to be reconciled. God God didn't go to all the trouble of sending His Son merely to point an accusing finger to tell us how bad we are. Um, He came to help, to put the world right again, to make everything that's wrong right once again. Anyone who trusts in Him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in Him has long since been dead in their trespasses. Have you believed? Have you embraced his payment for your sin? I hope so. Third characteristic, born-again people have rejected all other proposals for how to achieve this whole and lasting life. Uh, it doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how much better you are than somebody else or everybody else. God doesn't grade on a curve. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you do or how much you give to charity doesn't matter how many people look up to you or down to you. God tells us that salvation, this new birth, comes no other way, through no other name. No other name has been or will be given to us by which we can be saved. Only this one, only Jesus. Have you put your full weight down on Jesus? If you've done these things, you can rest assured that your name is, in fact, written in the book of life. Well, what does this have to do with Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 12? Well, everything. <laughs> Finally, you can turn to Isaiah 12. Isaiah pointed us toward this reality. I'm going to recap starting in Isaiah 6 briefly here. But in Isaiah 6, when he, be, he beheld the glory of God, he saw how magnificent God was. He's in the throne room. He's having this vision. And, and I mean, it's just amazing. And the angels of seraphim are, are flying around and they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And his, their voices are just rumbling and they're shaking the whole place. And smoke is filling the place. And, and Isaiah is just overwhelmed. And, and then he realizes, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm undone. I don't belong here. <laughs> what a, I, should, I shouldn't even I sh, he shouldn't even be able to exist in his presence. He's got this feeling that, of just how immense God's glory is, and just how inadequate he is in his own life. He says, "I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips." I mentioned before when I talked about this idea of unclean lips. It may be that they all had potty mouths. That seems pretty innocuous, really. I I think it's probably more about they were taking God's name in vain by claiming that they were Yahweh's children without living out the realities of what it means to be God's children, vainly wearing His name when they had no business doing it. And Isaiah realized that when he saw God's magnificence. And then what happens? (laughs) We got cleansed, right? And he volunteered. He goes, I'll be your spokesman. God's saying, who are we going to send to him? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Send me, Lord. I'll do it. Some might say he became so heavenly-minded that he was no longer any earthly good because he was just on fire for the Lord, right? But he wasn't so heavenly-minded. He actually was all, I mean, he was bringing a message they all needed to hear. Um, but they said that because their God image was too small. They thought Ahaz, put yourself back in the picture of where Ahaz is, and he's got these, these armies that are threatening to come against him. He's got the north, northern tribes along with Syria that are saying, we're going to attack you if you don't align with us against Assyria. And all the while, he's secretly making this deal with Assyria to, to be their partners, right, making a covenant with them, thinking that's going to save him, rather than trusting God. And God just said, trust me. Isaiah, go tell Ahaz to trust me. I'll, even, I'll give him a sign. Tell him to ask for anything, And he refuses, right? He refuses that sign. They thought Ahaz and all the people thinking like him, they thought money makes the world go around. They thought power makes the world go around. They thought authority makes the world go around. They thought armies make the world go around. All good things if they're used for God's glory. All worthless if they're not used in manners that are in accordance or in alignment with God's will. So Isaiah was more impressed with God than he was afraid of the earthly kings around him. I'm not saying he didn't have to deal with earthly problems, he did. Uh, It's just that they bothered him less than his awe and this magnificent vision that he had seen of God. So again, I'll ask you to consider a question I asked last week. What would happen if God's people were more afraid of him? If we held him in higher regard more in awe of him than anybody else or anything else in our world? What would happen? What would happen in your life if you trusted God's goodness more than the problems that you face, more than the things the world says you are, more than the world says your identity is? If you trusted God more than those things, well, the result would be profound courage, profound courage and incredible worship, which brings us finally to chapter 12. Trusting you've turned there. And chapter 12 is all about God's overwhelming grace producing worship. So Isaiah 12 says, "'You will say in that day, "'I will give thanks to you, O Lord, "'for though you were angry with me, "'your anger turned away that you might comfort me. "'Behold, God is my salvation. "'I will trust and will not be afraid.'" For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of, of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. It's a whole chapter of praise. And what you see, what he's, the other things that are being said here is he's restoring relationships with rebellious people, these people that he was angry with that were rebellious. He's restoring that relationship. He's bringing reconciliation, just like you and I used to be. In that day, the verse that says, in that day right at the beginning, talking future, yeah, undoubtedly it's talking about something in the future, Um, but I'd also argue that in that day is talking about the very day of your salvation. um, God is bringing peace between you and he in that day, in the day of your salvation, in a very personal sense. It's that he was angry, but his anger's been turned away. Again, he's talking about reconciliation. The Lord is reconciling people to himself. Turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter five talking about reconciliation. I'm concerned with the clock again, but I'm going to be less afraid of the clock and what you might think of me going over than I am with the goodness of God and the first we're looking at tonight because I think it's awesome. so Second uh, Corinthians chapter five verse 18. actually verse 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only has Christ reconciled us to him, he's given us that same ministry to go proclaim, to share our testimony, to bring other people into reconciliation with him by telling, him, telling them how glorious Christ is. So he's he's given us this ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Awesome passage, amazing verses, this ministry of reconciliation that he's given to us in order to share with other people. Um, That's why I invite you to to bring stories about sharing your testimony with others every Wednesday. Um, This is what we're called to do. Keep in mind, uh, there's no special benefit to God in him bringing about this reconciliation. He does it for us out of his grace because he wants to be with us. Don't conflate that with need. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need to be with us. He actually wants to be with us, which is much greater, actually. Um, he looks forward to unbroken fellowship with us. Revela, you can write this down. You could turn to it if you want. Revelation 21.3, 21, 21, it essentially says, I will be their God and they will be my people. So refrain from the Old Testament that echoes all the way through the Old Testament. And and finally, in the new heaven and the new earth, and God says, here we are, I'm dwelling among them, I am their God, and they are my people. It's like this culmination of everything from Genesis all the way through Revelation, right? Um, His desire the whole time. Um... Notice that in chapter 12, the the first part of it, it it is talking about this individual rescue. It's talking about individuals being reconciled to God. Our salvation is a very personal thing that happens, right? Um, But it's not supposed to be private. It's personal, but not private. Um, It's proclaimed. He says, proclaim it to all the people, to the whole earth. So... It's not private. This reconciliation, this grace, this mercy, it always bears the fruit of worship. And Rush, you wanna come on up. As we prepare to worship, I wanna share two, two truths to live by quickly, and then we're gonna, we're gonna finish the service by worshiping the Lord together. Um, two things here to live, two truths to live by. God alone will redeem their creation. And again, he's not doing it just because we need it not doing it just because we need it. He's actually doing it because he's decided to. Whatever his reasons are, I can't fathom them, fathom them most of the time. I don't know why he saved me. I don't know why he saved most of my friends. I got some weird friends, some of them. I got some really good friends too, but God is saving weird people. Yeah. Saving good people. Well good now that we're saved, right? Um, He doesn't need us, but somehow he's incorporating our efforts into his plan, which leads to the third point. Uh, There is a plan. He has a timetable. He's on track. He's not running late. It's actually his story, and he's calling us to be part of it. We so often invite God to be part of our story. It's like, God, I'm going to do these things and that thing, and I want to do this and that, and won't you come bless the things I'm doing, Lord? And he's saying, no, come be part of my story. That's what I'm really calling you into. Come join my story. My story is the important one. God's story is the important one. Join in it, and all these other things that you're wishing for will be added to it. Seek first the kingdom, and all these other things. God knows what you need before you ask. All these other things that are fun and joyous, and they'll be added to it, or things that will actually bring lasting joy. Um, The second truth is that Christ alone is the answer to the world's plight. The best thing you can do for the world is to get behind the gospel in every way. Put all your resources, all your time, energy, all your effort, all your money that you can spare. uh, Not just money you can spare, that's not what I meant. That sounded weird. All the time that you can spare, all the energy you can spare, all the effort you can spare, and yes, finances too. All of those things, put them behind the gospel. Everything about our lives, hopefully, is exuding gospel, exuding Christ. There's no better investment. You will find no better return. In any investment than that one. The best thing you can do for your unsaved friends is to live life as a real Christian. Live in the image of who you are in Christ, not in the image of what the world has done to you, not in the image of who or what the world says you are, not in the image of a grown up germ. You're actually created in the image of the everlasting God, King of the universe. Live in the image of who God says you are, always keeping in mind that we're part of the Messiah's kingdom and live under his laws and principles, even though he's not yet returned to establish his world rule. But he's not forgotten about us. He is returning for us. He's returning for that which is his. His victory is assured. Come while the coming's good. (laughs) And live in such a way that people accuse you of being too heavenly minded. Father, thank you that your mercy is more sacrifice of your son, the reconciliation that you've done through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, to, to rescue us, to reconcile us to you. Amazing, Lord. Simply amazing. Father, help us to live in the realities of what you've done and who we are in you, Father, that we would, we would be assured of our salvation. If, 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 if those three characteristics of being born again fit us, Lord, Help us to rest assured and to be courageous, to worship, to share, to be ambassadors for you, Lord. And Father, if anybody here or within the sound of my voice hasn't committed their life to you, Father, I pray that even right now you'd be doing a work in their hearts and minds that, that you would be leading them to a point of repentance, um, realizing the depth of their sin, the, the depth of their need for a savior that you have paid the price for each one of us, Lord, that puts, commits and puts our trust and hope in you. Father, thank you for those realities. Um, And for those of us who already know that, Lord, even as, as we spoke of at the opening of the service, please remind us of that and help us to remind each other of just how merciful and great you are, how much you love us. Father, we thank you so much for the rescue that you have planned out, put into motion and and are seen all the way through to the end, to the glorious day when you call each one of us home into your presence. Lord, we love you for these things and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.